Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Before we get started, are you thinking of creating a podcast or are you a podcast host already? As a podcast strategist, I can help you to launch or relaunch a purposeful and profitable podcast, which will inspire, entertain and educate a global audience. Simply book in a one-to-one call with me right now via the Calendly link in the show notes and together we'll focus on the purpose of your podcast. Today on Focus on Why, I am joined by Cyril Mannion. Welcome, Cyril. Hello, Amy. It is delightful to be here. Well, it's been a long time since we last spoke. It was earlier this year as a result of you tuning into one of my episodes and finding me through another episode. I think it was Jeremy Nicholas that you discovered me from. Yes, I'm a big fan of Jeremy Nicholas. I described him as my guru. Uh, so I first heard about you when I listened to Jeremy, Nick, Jeremy Nicholas's uh, podcast with you. And uh, yes, he's a, he's a star, really. I, I've been a big influence on my life. Well, he brings humour to the conversation, which is always welcomed, isn't it? <laughs> well, we try our best. I tend to talk about technical subjects, so you have to kind of drag humour in by the, by the scruff of the neck. But uh, he's, he's taught me quite a lot. Well, if anybody's thinking, I need to listen to that episode. It was episode 156, Talking Funny with Jeremy Nicholas. So definitely dive into that one. Thank you. So so let's talk about your world, Cyril. What is it you're doing at the moment? What I'm doing at the moment is trying to make the big decision. Am I going to kickstart my speaking business back into action? Uh, Because I, I started speaking really just after I left British Airways. I did a talk uh, to a local Rotary Club, and I got so enthused that uh, I thought well, it might be, there might be some fun in doing this. So when I went back flying again, I collected loads of video and stories. And then uh, when I stopped flying properly, which is nearly 12 years ago now, I uh, started speaking, and it went down quite well. And I got some feedback, including suggestions that I went on the cruise ships. And that led to getting introduced to a cruise agency. And uh, I went down to see this person, did, a, did a, 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 a demonstration. And he said, how many talks have you got? And I said, well, one at the moment. He said, well, we need a minimum of 10. And uh, so he was very helpful to me and coached me and su- suggested ways I could split my one talk into three. So I followed that advice and then started researching for my other talks. Uh, yet to be decided what subjects I was going to speak on. And that led me down an amazing voyage, Amy. I, I uh, knew a little bit about Alcock and Brown, uh, who were, you may know, the first nonstop flight across the Atlantic. And I, I ended up buying every book that was available about Alcock and Brown. And it just fascinated me. And, you know, all these things, one thing leads to another, and you meet somebody who knows something about it. And then again, uh, not by accident, but I ended up sitting beside the person who's the director of the Clifton Arts Festival. And you may know Clifton and the west of Ireland is where they landed. So uh, I talked myself into getting an invitation to speak at the Clifton Arts Festival on Alcock and Brown. 
And uh, I was given the graveyard slot, which was 10.30 on a Monday morning. And to everybody's amazement, the place was full. And uh, that led to, my wife was with me, and she uh, videoed several testimonials. And then as I got more confident about Alcock and Brown, I uh, got myself invited to be the, the speaker on the centenary of the crossing in June of 2019. And that was largely helped through knowing this person who invited me to Clifton and prices were the testimony, the video testimonials uh, from the people who watched me there then. So all I would say to people is, you know, you never know who will give you a help and a leg on the way. So you'll gather that what started off as a research for seven more talks became a, a passion, an obsession with Alcock and Brown. And, uh, and I, I loved it. So that's, that's, that really has, has occupied me for quite a while. And then uh, when COVID started, uh, of course, like everybody else, I, uh, we lost our bookings. And uh, I've done three of those talks since I've been rebooked. Uh, and I've done one talk last October, which is uh, a new talk, like uh, the other half of the talk that I've been doing for quite a while. But the reality, Amy, is, and this is really to answer your question in a long way, I, I'm not sure why I'm, I'm not going out there and chasing business. And I think I may well be at a stage where my, my flying stories are getting a bit old. And, you know, I, okay, nobody wants to talk about memories. And what I have been able to do when I was speaking was, was keep it very current. And I, I, I'm really not sure. So again, to try and answer your question, that's been so long, uh, I, I have been obsessed with a garden project, uh, which started with purchasing extra land in 2014 and expanding the land and, and landscaping it. And then by 2017, I realized I really didn't know very much about plants. So I, I uh, got the assistance of a plant specialist and he's been uh, like a guru to me, really. So we almost started again in ways. And uh, we, we gave each other a three-year project, but we've just finished it now after five years. And uh, it is fabulous. And I'm very proud of it. And like, like any of these things, when you do it yourself, you don't realize how good it is. Uh, but the beauty of this is that I've got loads of videos, loads of photographs, uh, and I think that may well be the basis of my next uh, phase of my speaking career because it's up to date and I'll be able to keep it updated and it is current rather than relying on my fading memory of what it was like to fly airliners and the stories there. <laughs> I'd rather keep them current and keep myself relevant. So sorry, Amy, it's such a long answer to a simple question, but <laughs> there you go. That's what I'm doing right now. Well, I love I love all this that you've just shared. There's so many different elements. I don't know which way to go first. What I want to understand is, yes, you've, you, you showed your passion and your obsession with Alcock and Brown. And what I want to understand is, where did the passion and obsession with flying come from? Because that's recent. So what happened at yeah. the beginning? Yeah. And I, I can remember where it started. I do not know why it started. But I, I, I know because I know the school playground I was in. So that I left that school when I was eight. So at the age of seven, I can remember just looking at this air, airplane that was flying overhead, an Aer Lingus airplane. And they're obviously practicing uh, going with one engine stopped. And I just became fascinated by it. And uh, I mean, I lived beside a railway. So I suppose I was familiar with railways and people had shown me railway engines. So basically, techie, techie side of stuff did fascinate me. 
uh, and I lived up to the garage, that helped as well. But anyway, go back to aviation. Uh, the nice thing about this is, would you spread the word that you're interested in something? Uh, people help you. So, so friends and family, if they were going to either Dublin or Shannon Airport to pick somebody up, they would, they would say, would you like to come along? And I would go along to more often Dublin. And it was, it was to me, it was better than going to Disneyland. You know, just watching these things there just, just, just amazed me. And uh, you'll, be, you'll be too young to know of Doug Hammarskjöld, who is the, uh, the director general, I think that called him that, of the United Nations. And he was murdered in 1960. And uh, a, a, one of the bodyguards with him was this, the brother of a woman who worked for my father. So that's why my father got invited to, to this funeral or the, this body coming off the airplane. And again, because the you know, I was interested in aviation, dad took me along. And we ended up being on the tarmac with government ministers all around. And I got the excitement of touching the wheels of this airplane. <laughs> all I did was just put my hands on the tire. And again, it was, it was amazing. So uh, Amy, I don't know where this passion came from, but I bought every book that I could get on it. And I set my heart on being, being a, a, an airline pilot at about that stage. So starting at seven, right through to teenage years. And it's interesting you said that you, you know where it originated, but you're not sure why. So yeah. let's, 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 let's see if we can unravel that somehow in this conversation somehow, because it will be there. It will be there and it will, it will be what, what, what is relevant to and what you want to share now has stemmed from that early sort of obsession and passion yeah. so talk me through the journey that it took you to get into the aviation industry well uh that was a very circuitous route um i had lots of distractions in my teenage years uh, through certain family misfortunes and my mother got um, got a brain hemorrhage in, in 1965 and as she recovered my father unfortunately um got uh, rheumatoid arthritis and he died uh, about a year after she got ill. So that rather disrupted my education. But nevertheless, I had still kept sight, focus on the objective, which was to get into Aer Lingus. And uh, I got the required education, you know, a number of O-levels and stuff. And it was unfortunate that in September of 1967, when there were, the next recruitment was, they changed the age limit. So now I was eight days too young on the 1st of September. And I still you know, sent an application form into them, but it, it obviously didn't get through the first uh, gateway and uh, I was rejected. So then on the same day, I sent applications into the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force to be trained as a pilot. And the Royal Navy were first out of the blocks and uh, invited me to go across to Biggin Hill to do the aptitude tests and then down to uh, Gosport in Portsmouth to do the, uh, the officer assessments. And uh, three weeks later, I did almost exactly the same thing uh, with the Royal Air Force. And to my amazement or delight, I should say, first of all, the Royal Navy offered me pilot training. And to my amazement, the Royal Air Force only offered me navigator training. And it's a kind of another story. Apparently, at, at interview, when the Royal Air Force said to you, if you were offered navigator, would you accept it? The answer should be no. But of course, I said yes, thinking I'd get my foot in the door and I would change their minds once I'm inside. And uh, without going through every blow of it, I didn't end up joining the Royal Navy because of 
of government uh, defense policy in 1968. And they deferred my joining date. And I, I meanwhile then recontacted the Royal Air Force and tried to persuade them to change their mind. And I failed in that. But balance of the two and a small bit of, of family pressure, I ended up in the Royal Air Force. Again, absolutely confident that I would persuade them to, to change me across to pilot training. And after five or six applications, I had almost given up. And then uh, in 1980, I was no longer too, too old. They told me in 1977, I was too old. In 1980, I was no longer too old. Uh, in 1980, I was no longer such a brilliant navigator that they couldn't afford to lose me as a navigator. Uh, in 1980, I was now based at Cranwell, which is a surprise, surprise, a pilot training base. And surprise, surprise, the, uh, the job I was doing, which was going to be my promotion job, uh, was disestablished. And again, surprise, surprise, the director of the department I was working for had been a previous squadron boss that had processed a previous application. And he'd given me the advice that he'd known many navigators who wanted to be pilots and that they'd all succeeded. Some of them didn't get the way that the route they'd like, but they all succeeded. So if you really feel like doing that, never, ever give up. And this was the man processing my application. And it's funny, the morning that's, that uh, that's, uh, I'd spent the weekend with a friend drafting this letter and, and I'd learned a lot about writing letters and all that kind of stuff by then. And uh, I'd, we'd written this perfect letter and I was walking down the corridor on the Monday morning and the boss saw me, this director, and said, and then he gave me the news, which I'd already, already suspected that I was basically, the job was going to be redundant. And out of my envelope, out of my briefcase, I'd pull saying, well, the letter is already here, boss. <laughs> and uh, and he, he altered one paragraph and uh, and the rest is history. So I, I have thanked him on my 60th birthday. Was I, I uh, contacted him again and said, this is, this is what I've achieved and largely down to your nudging and encouragement in 1975 and then in 1980, here I am. Wow. So... Let's just try and track out. So that's a, a 12 year journey. Is that right? It was 12 years to get from applying through to actually getting. Yeah, acceptance. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. 1968 or so, and I thought I'd got it and uh, the Royal Navy and it had changed. And in 1980, I finally I, I started training when I was 31 years old, yeah. surrounded by 18 year olds, 20 year olds. So that's a 12 year journey of focusing yeah. on why. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Never lose sight of the objective. No. So tell me what happened in 1980. In 1980, uh, I was so lucky, really. I went to, uh, once this, into, I was told I was, uh, my job was, was made unsuccessful. And, and I went down to, uh, it's, it's, it's in, in Gloucester, a place called Barnwood, as it was at the time. It's a career management place, you know, the HR place. And uh, the, the officer there dealing with me read my tea leaves, so to speak. And I said to him, um, but I'm at Cranwell, and you know it's on the record I want to be a pilot. Is there any chance? And uh, he was so supportive. He uh, told me the, the apt relative aptitudes I had for pilot and navigator, and I had a higher aptitude for pilot than I had for navigator. So that went in the application form. And the other thing, good fortune I had was, I phoned up my wife and we had two children under the age of two at that stage. And I said, um, it might all change. 
and the kind of good woman she is, she says, okay. <laughs> so complete career planning got turned upside down again. And I stopped being a desk officer in June of 19, 1980 and moved up the road to being a, a trainee pilot. And uh, I was I was very fortunate, really, in that I, I obviously have a natural aptitude with my hands and legs and eyes and all the rest of it. So I could make the airplane do what I what I wanted to do. So I, I, I encountered no problems at all with the physical side of flying airplanes. And of course, my at that stage, I'd done nearly 12 years as a navigator. So I knew a lot about the, the aviation side. So I was very comfortable in, comfortable in the air. So without being too cocky, I, 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 I had no difficulty with the training. And oh, Amy, I can't tell you what it was like. I remember one afternoon being doing my aerobatics over um, Bourne or that, that part of Lincolnshire. And here I am in this beautiful, beautiful January day, flying this airplane, doing loops and all the rest of it yeah, on my own for an hour or so. And I suddenly, I just stopped. I had to stop. I don't mean physically stopped in the air, obviously, but stopped the aerobatics because my eyes just filled up with tears. I was just so happy. I just said, I can't believe I'm getting paid for this and I'm having the time of my life. It was just absolutely lovely. And uh, I had at this stage, of course, st st still hope to go back to flying transport airplanes because that would have been a step closer to my, to my airline ambition, which was still, still the focus. But I was taken behind the bike shed, so to speak, and they said, you are going fast jets, whether you like or not, which means fighters and stuff. So suddenly, as from being a Hercules navigator, I found myself being sent to Valley to fly at lower level and fly fast jets. And again, I was very fortunate that Valley had a wonderful instructor, one instructor, but others were also extremely helpful. And I ended up you know, doing very well at Valley. And then... <laughs> You know, the next stage of the course is going down to um, to Chivano, where you learn now to act, use the airplane as a fighter as, or as a as a killing machine. And again, if I might say that, we had an American instructor who, who, who briefed us on this phase of the course. And I will never forget it, Amy. He came into the, to the, the, the room and, yeah, we were 10 or 12 students. And yeah, in those days, we had big blackboards and he put, you know, the piece of chalk on its side so the basically four inches long, and he went, the object of air-to-air -air combat is to kill. And he wrote these letters, kill, K-I-L-L, -L, nearly three feet high. And he says, does anybody have any problems with that? <laughs> it's a very sobering moment to realize, okay, you can fly the airplane, but from here on in, you're going to be taught to use it to kill people. Um, I, I, I didn't have a, a diff issue with that, but one person did uh, on another course with me, a good friend, and he uh, subsequently became an airline pilot, but he couldn't go on and, uh, and do, um, do that part of the role, so to speak. Wow. And, and while you're talking about this, I mean, I've just watched Top Gun. In fact, I went back and watched Top Gun Maverick <laughs> twi twice, okay? This is real life Top Gun. You are a Top Gun here, Cyril. <laughs> I saw it yesterday, Amy. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? Yes, yes, yes. I, I have to suspend suspend some of my experience, but but yes, it's entertaining. It's, and I, Tom, Tom Cruise is just brilliant. Just brilliant. Okay, so so don't don't sort of rattle any of our our <laughs> illusions or or sort of put them into shame in terms of how real it was, uh, because you know it is obviously a film. 
Yeah. Explain to, to us what that meant to be serving your country, to be flying a fighter jet, to be essentially uh, someone who has been assigned to kill. It's a very timely question because I was in Normandy on the, on the beaches a few weeks ago and I'd never been there before, but I was with seven others, ex, all ex-army or ex-service. Uh, ex and it affected us all deeply. Um, and bear in mind, you know, we'd all been trained and I, I very proudly left the Royal Air Force without a medal, but I was ready at any time. And, and I was on one of the first uh, to, to start flying the, the then new tornado. And very much our first role was was the nuclear role, and and I'll come back to that in a moment. So you know, I had no problem focusing and saying, as you say, to serve Queen and country. That's what I'm being paid for. That's what I'll do. And I and I I was no problem focusing. If the bell goes, that's what I'm going to do. But as far as I was concerned, and I am digressing a little bit, but as far as I'm concerned on the nuclear role, and my wife and I talk about this, it'll be a one-way mission, and. Uh, well, I'm heading east. Uh, she will come out and watch the sunshine over our local base, which no doubt would be a target for the other side. And that's all I'm prepared to say about that. But I, I, that was our focus that we talked about as a family, and that's what we're going to do. But to go back to the Normandy thing, um, it affected us all. And one of our group, uh, and he might business this, of course, uh, I felt was asking me probing questions about how could I, as a Southern Irishman, uh, serve Queen and country, uh, doing the kind of jobs that might have been called on upon to do. And I uh, told him a story that happened in 1971 when I was doing a combat survival course, a, tra a training, trained to be instructor on it. And you end up being uh, uh, interrogated. And of course, in those days, the interrogators that, that we had uh, one of them was a, was a Lloyds Bank manager from, from the city of London, and they're, they're part-time. But they are trained to go and do the work at that stage, of course, that they've been doing it shortly afterwards in Northern Ireland. It was just starting up big time then. And uh, you end up being de 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 oh, is it degraded, it's not uh, uh, embarrassed anyway. You end up absolutely stark naked, naked among other things, and they use various techniques. And I remember one of them um, going on about uh, my, my name, because my, my full name is Cyril Joseph Mary Mannion. So he questioned, you know, was there any doubt about my, my sexuality uh, with one of my names being Mary? And uh, you know, he, he, he touched my, uh, my private past, so to speak, and pointed out clearly it's in doubt for only a little, little insignificant member like that, and, and so on. And um, then... After that night is over, you all have breakfast together and, and you give each other feedback. And this particular man was asked to me, he said, I thought I was, I'd have, I was, you were going to crack at that point. I said, not in the slightest. I said, but if you probed a little bit more, questioning my loyalty about being Irish serving for the Queen, I said, I would have cracked. Because I was incensed that this man was saying, how could you fly for the Queen? You know, when what's going on in Northern Ireland, you're, 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 sympathizers are over there. I said, if you'd gone on that a little bit more, I'd have gone for you. And of course, that's that's the end of the exercise. So it's it's in my gut, Amy. <laughs> if I say I'm going to do it, um, I'm 100% focused on it, that's it. So you, you started this whole conversation, Cyril, wondering how you could make your stories relevant and, and current. And 
yes, they are, you know, several decades ago, but what do they tell you? Because they tell me they speak volumes. Thank you. What they tell me was all of this was done because I wanted to end up in an airliner. So although I ended up flying in the tornado and I ended up instructing it in the end, I was, I was getting my, my various licenses. And in 1987, when I left the Air Force, uh, here I am just coming up to the age of 38 with not many hours as a pilot, but nearly 4,000 hours as a navigator. Now, unfortunately, navigator hours don't count for very much at all, according to most airlines. But I know you often talk about, about uh, right contacts and networking. Well, it's critically important because I was sharing my frustrations with a good friend, and he's still a great friend. And he was then a, a new pilot for Dan Air, and he'd flown with me on a Hercules. And this guy, Al, you know who you are. Uh, he went into the HR office at Dan Air and said, you've got to give Sir Mangan a chance. You know, he's got 4,000 hours. I've flown with him in the Hercules. I know how good he is, and you've got to give him. And then a few days later, the phone rang, and I was asked, uh, could I come to interview? And I did. And a few days after the interview, they said, could you start on the Monday morning? So I left I left the, the, the Air Force about four or five months earlier than, than I would have had it. And I had to take a little bit of a pension cut for that. But that was really critically important because in that summer with Dan Air flying the 111 out of Birmingham, I gained nearly 50% more pilot hours than I had already. I flew over for, for nearly 500 hours, which then got me above the magical figure of 1,500 hours. And then, lo and behold, British Airways, who had um, uh, only tried to... Um, employ people who were under the age of 33 to start with, then they changed to 35, and then they eventually changed to 39, and there was I with my uh, application form already at home, and I must have been one of the very first to have the application form, because the, the ad changed on a, on a Thursday when Flight Magazine came out, and I think I had my my uh, letter in the post to them by the, by the Saturday, and uh, they gave me an interview, and they said, which airplane do you want to fly, and they employed me. And I flew the 747, and British Airways were fantastic to me. And then finally, and this is where we finally get to what I wanted to achieve, uh, in, uh, in January of, nine, of 1999, I landed my first airline command was a 747 from London to New York. And that, that was the most fantastic day of my life. I'd waited till I was almost 50 for to achieve an ambition that I set about at the age of eight. But I got there and I couldn't have done it in better style than being the captain of a British Airways 747 for my first uh, commercial flight. I was as proud, as proud as punch. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. And the best thing also, I won't become emotional about it, is my mother was still alive. I was able to tell her I got it. I had to say it to her twice. I said, Mom, my first command is going to be on British Airways 747. And what did she say, Cyril? She had to get me to say it a second time. She couldn't believe it. But uh, that was a bit. Her smile said it all. And unfortunately, she didn't live long enough for me to take her on a flight with her, but I, with me. But I've taken uh, some of my sisters, and and not unfortunately, my brother could never manage to come. 
but they've been on flights with me and uh, it's it's a joy a joy so tell me what does it feel like when you're up in the air well <clears throat> when i'm talking about this i emphasize the human aspects because to me one of the joys of the job was working with people the airplanes um, are largely predictable pieces of machinery and you know, the other the, the designs are getting better and better and better and safer and more efficient all the time and and yeah we, we still practice engine failures but the reality is it just don't happen very often uh, what what you do practice is the decision making processes so when you're in the air uh, you're always what i call the your your, your contingency planning so particularly flying a two-engine airplane like the 777, you must always know if an engine stopped, where is your nearest suitable diversion airfield at any one point? And you should always be able to ask your captain, your copilot, where would we go now if something happened? So that's what the, that's one of the things you're doing in the back of your mind all the time. But it just becomes second nature. You, you, you do that as a matter of course. My, my, <laughs> my son, um, when he was about 15, um because I, I do this because it's so deeply instinctive i do this all the time <laughs> and he said dad you're just a warrior and i said no tom it's just contingency planning <laughs> but it's like before we started this podcast and you know what i'm talking about you know i did double checks of this and double checks of that and triple checks because i can't help it i have to just uh, double check and make sure everything is right so that's one of the things you're doing all the time is just planning what if what if what if and then the big thing and the job part of the job I loved is the unpredictable thing are the human what humans throw at you, and uh, when I do my talk about about the, the uh, in fact this particular talk is called the human aspects of airline Co command, I talk about <clears throat> a misbehavior on board which I, I won't go into in detail at the moment but it it so you get to the point of saying is this person uh, so dangerous to the safety of this flight that I'm going to have to land the flight and get them off. Uh, and on the another not too dissimilar one is um, people get ill. Uh, unfortunately, some of them die, uh, and you have to you know make plans for that. And obviously, you don't you don't plan for them to die, but before they die, you might make plans to divert. And we have ways of getting assistance with that these days. So, um, that, so that's that's the kind of you're all the while you're thinking and you're ready for. You're not quite sitting on the edge of your seat, but you are ready to be able to react calmly when the unexpected occurs and it can happen at any time. So I don't in any way want to suggest that we're sitting on the edge of our seats and being nervous or frightened, but that's that's what like being in the air is for me. Also, uh, I think it's the, probably the bit I had to work hardest at, Amy, is remembering all the written rules and regulations because you know, when these things are, are delivered at you, you may well have never needed to do it for real, but you must know that the procedure is in a book somewhere and what book it might be and have, have, a, have a vagueness, have, have, at least be aware of where to search for it when suddenly it happens to you. Um, and then I had also had my company, I used to call that my company hour where I'd read the manuals. And you'd also have your personal hour where you'd chat to people or chat to your colleague uh, or you'd or or you'd um, just read the newspapers or magazines as well. It was seven or ten hours a long time airborne. Yeah, I always wonder what the the pilot's doing when I'm <laughs> sitting sitting back there watching uh -huh. all these fabulous movies. So now yeah. I know. <laughs> 
But in terms of your sheer determination, your real consistent focus and that ability to analyze risk and that ability to respond to any changes and to plan, but also be aware that in the moment you need to have a completely different plan that is adhering to the rules and regulations. I recently read Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed, which talks about the aviation industry. And it talks about how you can lose that sense of time in the air and you lose all awareness sometimes about what's going on. But because you've practiced and practiced and practiced this in your mind, you don't have that loss of of lack of awareness. But it's drilled into you, the the decision-making process. And right early on, I mean, you talk about knowing the procedures. Right early on, they emphasized to you, I'm talking about Air Force days now, the very, very first thing you must do when something goes wrong is fly the airplane. You can know all the procedures in the world, but first of all, can you fly the airplane? And even you go back about about the Royal Air Force, for example, in those days you'd be sitting on an ejector seat. If you only got one engine, if the engine is gone and the airplane can't be flown or you can't get it on the ground, then the only option is to leave the airplane and let it crash. Via, via your ejection seat, but first and foremost, fly the airplane. And there, there are many accidents that happened where the, 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 that emphasis was not first and foremost in the pilot's mind, and they, and they crashed the airplane rather than thinking, how can I fly it safely? So basically, fly the airplane is the, is the first most important thing. Sorry, Amy, the second part of your question was, well, it was it was more about understanding. Like we were looking at the focus on why here, and understanding yeah. that you know all of your qualities, all of your values that have come to play in your determination and focus to achieve your dream, and it, it comes down for me. And you 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 have that inner that that really inner inner ability to understand what you want to do, and that's been there's been a clarity there from age of seven, which is, you know, not a lot of people have that. And it's helped you to make every single decision thereafter. So I was just, I was just wondering, do do you have your values as clear as that? Yeah. Well, okay. I'll just focus on that point. If, if, when you have what I call focus on on the strategic aim, wouldn't you never lose sight of the strategic aim? You will spot so many opportunities that will help you to achieve that. Now, for example, I was on the Hercules as a navigator in 1975, and navigators were were a a dying breed. There was no future for them. But once you got an above average rating, you could get what's called a flight navigator's license by doing just two two exams. Now, so I would often got myself a flight navigator's license. And people said to me, you're crazy. There's no jobs for that. But wind the clock on to, to 1986 or 85, 86, when I was um, getting my air, airline pilot's license. And uh, I, I uh, the, the procedure is quite a lot of exams, a lot of navigation exams. So I just asked the Civil Aviation Authority, would my now out of date 11 or 12 year old flight navigator's license be valid? And the, to my amazement and delight, they came back to me and said, 
are you still flying military airplanes? I said, yes, I'm a pilot of a tornado. They said, well, that's current military airplane. We'll 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 revalidate your your, uh, flight navigator's license. And that exempted me from a huge amount of of the exams that I would otherwise have have to do. So that's why I think once you keep focusing on the aim, all the other little things that will contribute to it just come out of the woodwork. It, it's it's like uh, I mentioned about the, my friend and Dan Air. You know, people you know what will help you. So uh, we have fo- focus on the aim is critically important. And uh, and again to to go back to saying when something goes wrong on an airplane, fly the airplane and focus on getting it all safely safely resolved on the ground. And then you you. That being the aim, then everything else is whatever it might be is required to contribute to it will be really obvious. And and I don't know. I I enjoyed making those decisions and felt comfortable enough doing it. And the values, Sarah. What what do you, what do you have as your core values? I'll think about that one moment. Um, I think a sense of right and wrong. Uh-huh. Uh, very clearly, I don't, I don't, I don't uh, compromise on that. Uh, I, I have a very slow fuse, but uh, I can surprise myself if I feel somebody. Uh, and it doesn't happen very often. But I feel somebody is going to take advantage of me or something like that. Then I can, I can, I can blow big time and even frighten myself with how angry I can get. Um, because it's not a sight to be holding, you know, sure, you're an angry soul man when I've lost it. Uh, but that's, I would not need all the five fingers on one hand to probably say the number of times I could remember losing it like that. And that, normally that calm. Now, I've just realised that I'm sitting here talking to you and I have very few things on my desk, but I have two relevant items that I absolutely love and they're relevant for this conversation and I'm going to show them to you and one is a tiny little red arrow there we go a Royal Air Force red arrow and the other one is Concorde (laughs) wonderful wonderful I'm having lunch tomorrow with my friend who is a one of the Concorde test team he's nearly 90 Uh, so that's you, you must have had telepathy Amy to show me Two favorite airplanes. <laughs> the Hawk well, was the one I flew at Valley. It was a delightful airplane. Yeah. Isn't it funny? I mean, I've been obsessed with the Red Arrow since I was a kid. And and again, when I went to university, I went to Reading University, Concord would fly over every single time you would have to stop because you couldn't do anything else. It was so loud. It was fabulous. And so I have become, you know, I was gutted I never got to fly on it. But uh, I have actually interviewed um, Red 10 at one time for uh, and taken photographs of the Red Arrows for for magazines. Um, Love it. Absolutely love them. So this has been a, a really fabulous conversation. And I really encourage you to use the, the lessons that you have and the, the values that you hold and the, the relevance to business, the relevance to people from an individual perspective as well, that you have yeah. taken from your experience over the last 40 years, because it, is, it has been well, longer than that. You know, it's, it's, it's just incredible to see. Oh, thank you. But to see this this focus on why from the age yeah. of seven to to today 
and to have this passion combined with a plan to achieve what you wanted to do. I mean, it, it absolutely is embodies everything that I talk about from a perspective of Focus on Why. Thank you, Amy. You're, you're, you're welcome. It's been, and, and I saw how emotional you got when you, a couple of times actually, when you, you shared about how you couldn't believe you were going to get paid for this as a job. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then that, that time when, you know, when you were doing loop the loops and then when and aerobatics and, and it's amazing. Yeah. But then also when you were able to tell your mother that you had achieved your dream. Yeah, that was fabulous. Yeah. So what's next? Well, what's next? That's that's where we started, really. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I'm i in this stage of my life, really. We're obviously comfortably retired. Um and do I want to sort of still go back to doing what I did before, or shall I find something new to focus on? And whether I'll go down the speaker's route or not, I just haven't decided yet. I'd like, I think, to get this garden project fully finished, which we're really virtually on the threshold of doing that now, and then see what happens next. Uh, until COVID, um, I, I saw the future as, as doing at least one month's cruising each year. but. Uh, None, neither my wife nor I like the, the way cruising is going at the moment uh, until a lot of the restrictions are removed and you can uh, you know, properly uh, socialise on board. I don't think we're ready for that. Uh, we've just had a series of short holidays in Europe and I think I'd like to do some more holidays in the north of England. And maybe out of that will come a rekindling of some some new focus on why and say, say I want to go and do that. But um, you know, you're never too old to start something new, Amy. So, so I'm not sure that's your question. But um, I, I know that if I if I decide to do it uh, and wear it up, I will make it happen. Well, with your focus on a strategic aim and and being able to spot opportunities, I have no doubt that something will <laughs> arise very soon because you know you you have got that incredible never give up attitude and and yeah. absolutely I'm with you never too old I, I always talk about midlife beginnings and yeah. it is a case of there's always opportunities there you you just need to to go out there and look for them yeah <laughs> that's that's true that's true yeah. So Cyril, someone's listening to this and they they want you to come and speak to them. Maybe it's to talk to them, talk to them about all cock and brown. Maybe it's to talk about determination or or how to follow your uh, strategic aim in, in life. Where can they reach out to you? Uh, I have a website. Uh, it's called captaincyril.biz. Uh, so that's the, that would be the first point of contact. It's got my contact details there and it's got some testimonials and you'll get the idea of the kind of thing I speak about. But I like the way you've just suggested that uh, I could broaden out a bit because I did one talk. Um, my my son is a is a, a assistant head at at the school, and he got me to talk to them about the no blame culture because the improvement in safety in aviation comes from uh, not having a blame culture. We 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 just look at what went wrong and how can we change it to make sure it's safer next time round. So I would love to develop um, more talks maybe on on a no blame culture. And, and that way to go and, and maybe take some of the lessons from my aviation background and adapt them to, to um, maybe the corporate world or, or whichever, whichever organization thinks I could help in that direction. 100%. I think that's a fantastic idea. And having, having read 
black box thinking and understanding where that no blame culture is is involved in the evolution of medicine and in the aviation yeah. industries particularly and having that sort of ability to reflect on what's gone wrong and how to improve going forward yeah. it's and having that ability to to claim responsibility without fit the feeling of being victimized or, or blamed that then yeah. yeah that's a great idea so Cyril it has been an absolute whirlwind I feel like I've been doing loop the loops up in the plane and and I don't <laughs> I don't think that my uh my aptitude it would be as natural as yours with the physical side of flying and doing that but um it's been an absolute dream having you on thank you so much have you got some final words for the audience please well, I, I, I think uh, I would just re re reiterate what I said during the talk again is no matter what you're doing, just never lose sight of what the objective is. And then you'll be quite surprised how people will spot what you're trying to do and will try and help you. Or friends or other contacts will say, oh, you know, Cyril or whoever your name is, um, have you thought about doing this? Because uh, I've got a good contact here that might help you. So I would say, Never lose focus on the objective and make sure that everybody around you knows it. And again, we had an expression that was taught to me uh, in British Airways, share your mental model, we used to call it. Share your mental model with people around you and then everybody knows what you're trying to achieve. How has this conversation had an impact on you? What value have you received from tuning in? What are your reflections with actions? Please take a moment to leave me an Apple podcast or Spotify review sharing how Focus on Why has made a difference to you today. Remember, the conversation doesn't end here. To keep it going, simply connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter or join the Focus on Why Facebook group. All the links are in the show notes. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.